Hey, you, Prime members, you can listen to Three Little Words ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is brought to you by Quorn, the nation's favourite meat-free brand. Quorn is a great partner for this show because their products have been in our house for years because I'm a vegetarian, so it's always in my fridge. So for every podcast, Tony gives us a Quorn fact. I do, John. Uh, As I like to call them, a quack. And this week's quack is Quorn is a super protein. It's high in fibre, low in saturated fat, and contains no cholesterol whatsoever. So if you're looking for cholesterol, yeah, this is Yeah, wrong place. So if you're going vegan, vegetarian, or just cutting down on meat a bit, you'll find that Quorn is a great option because they've got so many different products from cocktail sausages to Turkish-style kebab. There's something for everyone. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Three Little Words. It's a podcast with me and Tony Pitts. What we do is we ask a guest to bring on three words that mean something to them. I don't know the words. Tony does. He then explains the etymology of the word. Etymology of the word. Etymology of the word. And then we find out from our guest what the word means to them and why they've picked it. Today's guest is a legend or an icon, whichever way you want it. An institution and everything to do with an era of British comedy that is defined by everything that we do since. In many respects, he was part of the Beatles of comedy by being in the, the Pythons. It is none other than John Cleese. John, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, delighted. It's nice sometimes to be able to chatter, and that's why I've always liked the radio. It's not a frantic form. You know, there aren't people looking at their watches all the time. And this is this is really the evolution of the radio, the podcast format. It's just mobile radio, really. That's right, and that's why I like it so much, because I started in radio in 19... God, what was it? 1963. Yeah. I had a job in New Bond Street, where the BBC uh, Radio Light Entertainment was. And um, I always liked the medium because there's the minimum of technology. You know, we're just chatting to each other yes. like we would if we were having coffee. Uh, uh, and fewer gatekeepers, John, as well. Fewer people to, you have to run things by. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Right. No, I think it's a lovely medium. That's why I like doing voices for animated films, because that's exactly the same thing, you know. Although it's very interesting when you say that you started in light entertainment radio, because people will think of you very much as a physical comedian. I know, and I wasn't at the beginning, John. I, I must have learned it, because at the beginning, I remember thinking, I have two skills. I use words quite well, and I can choose funny words, and the other thing is my timing is good. And I thought, I don't really have anything else. I mean, I can't sing, <laughs> and I can't 
dance. And I, you know, I don't have any of those old attributes that entertainers had. But I suddenly discovered that I seemed to be able to move funnily. And I think that came because I was a very keen um, games player. And if you're a games player, then you have to start learning certain movements, you know, how to play the backhand or how to play the off drive or whatever, or how to drive a golf ball. And, and that physical, the sense of physical timing, I think is very, very much like the sense of comic timing. I totally agree with you. It's, it's one of those things where there is a relationship between your body and that, that comic timing in your mind. And often you can see it in performers where they're thinking of the movement they're going to make before they make it. Yeah. And, and, and that, that, that is it's that whole thing about performance, isn't it? Two people can make a pratfall, exactly the same trip. One's funny, hilarious, the other one misses it. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing you see is when you, when you get into analyses of humour, people sometimes sort of ask me about the philosophy or psychology of humour. You always, lay, always leave that element out. Why is timing so important? The philosophers of humour never really deal with that. You mm. see what I mean? Yes. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I've always said comedy is the most instant form of communication there is because when you say something, People either laugh or they don't laugh. They don't think that's about laughing. And that's where the timing is. Yeah. Tom Stoppard, you know, the great playwright, he said something, I think it was some years ago, and I really loved it. He said, the shortest distance between two people is a laugh. Yes. The most immediate, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's beautiful, yeah, it is. And I think uh, I've come to the conclusion, particularly since I got married to my fourth wife, <laughs> with whom I'm extremely uh, happy, um, is that is that we laugh so much together. And when two people laugh at something at exactly the same moment, there's a kind of emotional contact there that's about as deep as you can get. Yes, absolutely. Somebody, I can't remember who it was, said, when, when you make someone else laugh, you realise it's not just you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, that's maybe that maybe that's a function of laughter. Maybe that's in an evolutionary sense. It it would take some explaining, but maybe maybe that's a function of laughter that it it makes an immediate contact from something slightly beyond your conscious mind. Yes, that's right, and I think that's why I noticed forty years ago that the people who have the best jokes, the newest best jokes, are salesmen. <laughs> because yeah. if they can start off with a good joke or two with the person they're trying to sell to, yes. that's the best way of getting in touch with them, you know, to establish a certain rapport. Uh, that, uh, that's, in, that's so interesting it to is, me because yeah. that was my first job. I was a salesman. Yeah. That was really? My, yeah. yeah. Not one laugh in a five-year <laughs> career, not one. Not one laugh but, it, no but it's interesting, isn't it? When you first meet somebody, you don't, I mean, I, I, we've never met John, but you f I think our first instinct when we meet somebody not known to us is to, is to b both consciously try and find a laugh. Yeah, it's a very healthy impulse. It's lovely if people do that instead of trying to impress the other person because one of the things I do believe is that when you realise the other person's trying to impress you, it really is very unimpressive. Yes, <laughs> the least impressive thing, yes. But also, that must be a thing that you've had a lot of your life because you've had such a, a stellar career and you are, you are viewed so highly. You must have had so many people who consciously or subconsciously, when they meet you, try to show off 
Well, I wouldn't call it showing off, but I, I have noticed it's kind of funny as if someone really makes me laugh. It's a, it's a kind of affirmation. I was talking to somebody two days ago, and she'd met me when she was young, and she'd said something. She was about 13, and I'd really laughed at it. And she said, all right, I'm going to be a comedian, and she's now a comedian. Wow. Oh, fantastic. Wow. The nice thing about humor is there's, there's a lot of warmth in it. Because um, it's very hard to be pompous or conceited if there's an amused, relaxed, humorous atmosphere. It's sort of pomposity just gets pricked and sort of fades away because you can't keep that kind of bullshit up. Can I, can I ask you a question? So on the reverse side of that, John, is we talk about people, the pressure that people feel when they may, meet you to make you laugh or to seek your approval. Uh, do you feel a pressure? to be funny in, in any given situation? I, I used to, at the very beginning, when I started in the Frost Report, 66, 67, I, I, have, I had a feeling people expected to be funny. And, of course, sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. It depends on your mood and the mood of the person you're talking to. No, I don't feel that anymore because I can chatter away quite happily and exchange ideas, and provided I'm making contact with the person I'm talking to, that's enough. I don't have to make them laugh. Well, John, you mentioned your, your love of words. Um, as you know, the show is structured that we ask you to th bring three words that mean something to you. Joni will explain the etymology, and then we find out from you why you picked them. What is your first word? I think affection. I chose affection because I think affection is very important. Just quickly, John, I'll do etymology, a quick definition, a couple of quotes. So the etymology is from 1200, affection, which is a desire, an inclination, wish or intention. And then from the mid-14th century, an emotion of the mind, passion, lust, as opposed to reason. Definition of affection is affection is properly used to denote a feeling or a type of love amounting to more than goodwill or friendship. And then just a couple of quotes that I dug out that I love. Audrey Hepburn said, I was born with an enormous need for affection and a terrible need to give it. John Keats said, I'm certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. And then Sylvia Plath, I'm capable of affection for those who respect my world. I think respect is an integral part of affection. If you don't respect a person, I don't think you can really be affectionate towards them. I mean, it may seem a soppy thing to say, but I feel this with, with my cats. <laughs> oh, I feel very affectionate with my cats, but I, I, do ex uh, I do experience them as separate personalities that's interesting. It's also interesting that you chose cats because, you know, the world is split between those who love dogs and who love cats. And I love dogs because dogs give you an outward sign of affection. I've always said that every married man needs to get a dog because you need somebody who's pleased you've come home. <laughs> Whereas cats don't really ever seem that bothered. Well, I think I think dogs are a bit easy. Uh, I think not dogs. <laughs> uh, 
Dogs are proto-Nazis. You know, they want wow. to find out. Wow, wow, wow. They want to curry favor by doing absolutely exactly what that person wants. You see, they sit there with their tongues hanging out and say, who shall I bite next, master? Because what they want is a sort of a chevron on their shoulders to say that they're moving up in the ranks. Whereas cats, you have to be a bit, bit more subtle about it. There's a lovely one about dogs at her, dogs and cats, where they say that if you, uh, if you feed a dog, and give it warmth and affection it thinks you're god and if you feed a cat and give it warmth and affection it thinks it's the god (laughs) that's the difference well i like dogs have owners and cats have staff (laughs) i I think we can actually stop doing the podcast series in total now that we have the quote that we will yeah yeah yeah, dogs are proto-nazis jugglies that's the quote of the series (laughs) But, well, they just want to find out who's in charge and then curry favour from them. That's right, and pack cats, leader. But cats are sort of saying, well, here I am. And what do they say? They say you call a dog and he comes. And you call a cat and it might get back to you. Yes, yeah. I'll let you know. It's interesting when you say that that they you have to work for their affection. As a man who's been married, as you said right at the start, four times, you have worked yeah. for affection. Well, I think affection is the most important thing in the world because what people call love or romantic love can go sour so easily. Yes. You know, I mean, how do, how, why are there so many divorces and split ups? I mean, I don't mean there's any more now than there ever were, perhaps, although financial th- circumstances make it easier for people to split up now. But I mean, how come that this person who you decided you want to, um, spend the rest of your life with and then you can't stand the sight of them mm. now that doesn't happen with affection affection is long lasting and I think it's almost more important because the affection that I feel for my wife and my cats not necessarily in that order is so considerable that was supposed to be funny. Uh, I, I, I swallowed the I swallowed the laugh. Yeah, it was. Is it, no, I, I was letting it go. But also, I, I, it's interesting when you talk about affection because you're talking about the intimate relationship of a wife, and, and obviously, in order, the cats and the wife. But people have an affection for you as what they perceive you to be, or or of what you've given them. Well, this, John, you know this as well as I do, that if you make people laugh, they have affection for you. Yeah. It's a fact, absolutely a fact. And it doesn't matter what you do to make them laugh, provided they laugh. I mean, you take Basil Fawlty as an awful creature. If you sat (laughs) And W.C. Fields is about my favorite comedian. I don't think young people know him, but he's the guy who said anyone who hates children and dogs can't be all bad. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really funny, um, uh, but he always played a curmudgeon, yet everybody loved him. So if you make people laugh, you get a lot of affection from them. And that's very nice, because when I go now, I go out now to do my stage shows and I meet people afterwards, it's really quite touching. There are men in their 70s who shake my hand and they say thanks for making me laugh all these years. And there's a tear in their eye. Yes. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yes. And that, I, I would suggest, that's quite a... A new experience for you if you look at your career on a whole because the 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 doing the live one man shows is relatively recent, isn't it? 
Oh, yes, I did that because of the uh, divorce. I mean, I had to earn this huge sum of money, as you know. I think it was 20 million altogether. Um, And suddenly I had to earn it very, very fast. And, you know, one of the things I've done all my life is take a lot of time to write a script, like Fish Called Wonder or Forty Towers. We used to take six six weeks, John, six weeks to write a Forty Towers script, Connie Booth and I. So I used to like to do that. But you can't do that if there's a pressure for money because the money doesn't come in fast enough if you're writing. So I realized that the best thing to do was to go out in front of live audiences. Let me just say about affection that although we've been talking about humor and everything like that, I think it's more important in relationships than long-lasting marriages and affairs. They are all based on the fact there's real affection, which always incorporates respect. What what matters is the the fact they basically like and respect each other because that lasts. Yes, I was just going to say that affection is often what's left when the when the flush of love and the fires die down. That that the the sustaining thing is the affection. That's the thing that carries you through the years. Yeah, I think it was Ambrose Bierce who defined love as a temporary state of insanity immediately cured by marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe not, imme- not, imme- not immediately, maybe. <laughs> not immediately. You know, it takes about four months as far as yeah. that room. Yeah. But because uh, my wife and I at the moment find each other terribly funny and we, we jump out and try and scare each other. And if I get up first in the morning, she'll try and creep up behind me and start <laughs> me. All that playfulness comes. You can't do that if you're not very fond of someone. Yeah, I, I have to say, though, John, because obviously we can see you and people will know that, you, you, let's say, you're a man of more senior years. You're in your 80s. The idea of it's playful being yeah. scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> What's your second word, John? Plummet. 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 Okay, oh, so a quickly. So plummet is from uh, plum meaning lead, and it's from the late 14th century, ball of lead, plum of bubbler. And the definition, obviously, is to fall very quickly and suddenly. And I'd be interested to see in what sense you're going to use the word. I've just got one quote from uh, Sophocles. You know he's a relation of mine. Sophocles? Sophocles. Oh, Sophocles. Oh, my God, how <laughs> slow was I? <laughs> I was th- a little bit slower then. Shall we do it again? Uh, no, let's leave my shame hanging there. Let me tell I deserved it. I, did, I looked at the page, because I was thinking it's Sophocles, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, where does... Uh, so, anyway, yeah, no, I'll take the shame. I deserved it. So, from your distant cousin, Sopho, who said, <laughs> the tyrant is a child of pride who drinks from his sickening cup, recklessness and vanity until from his high crest, headlong, he plummets to the dust of hope. So, John, I'm going to ask you why you chose plummet. Well, uh, why I chose that word is that I've always thought that words have extra connotations. You know, if if, if you say somebody fell, it's factual. But if you say he plummeted, then yeah. it's already there's a half smile there because you think of a plummet is, whoosh, you know, what yes, I mean? yes, no yes, messing around. yes. And I'm fond of plummet because the first sketch I ever wrote with Chapman for the for uh, um, Monty Python. Uh, we used to read words out of a Roger's thesaurus in the morning to see if anything inspired us. And I read out a couple. I said, cucumber. Hmm. No, I can't think of it. Admiration. No. And then I said, 
plummet and, and grace. Oh, he said, I like plummet. I said, so do I. It's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> and we laughed. And I said, well, what would plummet? And he said, well, a sheep would plummet. A <laughs> sheep <laughs> from, a, from a hillside. About? Yeah. Well, why would a sheep plummet? He said, well, if it tried to fly, it would plummet. Right, right. Right. And I said, why is it trying to fly? And he said, because it has heard about red currant jelly and mint sauce. It wants to get out of there. <laughs> and that was the first sketch we ever wrote. Wow. But the point is, it's a lovely word. And there's some words that are funny yes. and yes. and some words that aren't. Yes. Um, we can all think of a million examples of that. If you say somebody stalked into the room or somebody sailed into the room, it's more interesting and yes. conjures up more than somebody walked into the room. Yeah. And there's a wonderful, you remember a movie called Sunshine Boys about two yes, very Yes, Jack Lemmon and uh, Maltamata. Maltamata. There's yes. a speech right at the beginning. It's Matthau, and they're walking in New York, and he goes through what are funny words. And he gives us an instance. You know, there's a fruit called a kumquat. Yes. yes. That's a, you see, you smiled immediately. <laughs> oh, I <that's> said it. <laughs> well, yeah. well, what's interesting about this whole discussion is the beginning of it, when you were talking about the writing process, where you sat in a room with a thesaurus just looking for funny words. That yeah. just shows yeah. the importance of language, but also the creativity of mind that that you all had at the time, thinking we can get something purely from a word. Well, it's actually, I'm glad you said that, because I'd like to mention I've just got a book out on creativity. Have you yeah. heard anything about it? Yes. No, but, I uh, haven't, John. Tell me all about it. I don't. I've not heard about <laughs> it. Well, I just, uh, when I, I was very, uh, what we'll say, uh, left brain, yeah. you know, my education was all about learning rules and applying them, whether they were mathematical rules or rules of Latin and things that weren't application of rules. I kind of decided you didn't get so many marks for them, so they weren't important. And that's uh, that's the dominance of the left brain, which is goes throughout our society. And I'll give you a perfect example. When I was... 15, I had to write an essay. My English teacher wanted an essay on the subject of time. And I wrote the whole essay about the fact that I hadn't had time to write the essay. Yes. Yeah. Play with the idea. Yes. Sort of amusing. The response was, John, this isn't a proper essay. Yeah. Yeah. So that playfulness and creativity is kind of slowly sucked out of us. It's not a cruel process, but it's sucked out of us because we're living in a world where things are either right or wrong. And actually, I believe that there are very few things that are totally right and very few that are totally wrong, that most things are on a spectrum between very, very bad and Hitler up one end and too pathetic and weak on the down the other end. And you've got to try and find a, a balanced place on the spectrum. Yeah, the, the empirical empiricism and the two plus two of life is uh, is all pervasive and runs through the. And there is that school of thought that uh, school sort of crushes art, crushes that instinct well, they, they try and get people they don't intend to do this but they may make people frightened of making a mistake and one of the key statements in this little book on creativity is that when you're being creative when you're in the creative phase there's nothing 
like a mistake. There isn't, there are no mistakes in that phase when you're trying to think of things because until you've explored something new, you don't know whether it's going to be useful or not useful. So you can't suddenly say, well, that's a mistake. We won't talk about that anymore because if you talk about it, you may find there's another very good idea comes out of it. And it's subjective as well and it's, and it's, and it's being received. So that, I thought oh, the, the idea of giving people prizes for creativity is always struck me as odd. The idea that one one thing is better than the other when that's it's right. when it's actually in the the receiving than yes, the, that's right. than the creation people's different prejudices and attitudes throughout your career you've kept you've kept your mind going you kept your mind being creative is this book kind of uh, if you like your your little handbook to pass on to people who say, this is what I've learned about creativity at, through being creative for the last, I don't know, 60, 70 years? Or, yes, is it, or, or could you have written the same book 30 years ago? Did no, you? no, no, because I learn all the time. You see, this comes out of my third word, yeah. which is wisdom, which is, I think, Sophocles, my relation wants to find. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, yeah. As, um, uh, no, no, knowing how little you know. Because if you accept you really don't understand anything, which is my position at the moment, I can't understand anything at all that's going on in the world, then at least you're in a position to learn. Whereas people who think that they know it all have stopped learning because they think they know it all. They become, a, they prisoner, become a prisoner, don't they? Be a prisoner of their own conceit. Prisoner of the great desire to be right, which I think causes most of the problems in the world, because it means that people take up set positions and then they can't talk to each other. I, but I think it's so important, as you said, that when you have that creative drive that you keep feeding it rather than stifling it and find an outlet for it, whatever that may well be. Yeah, that's right. You just go on, you just allow yourself to play. The best research that was ever done on creativity was done on architects about a long time ago, like uh, 50 years ago, a guy called McKinnon at Berkeley in, in San Francisco. He studied uh, not creative artists, but he studied uh, professions and was interested in architects. And he he, he asked all the architects, who are the most creative uh, people in your business? And then the same names came up. And then he went to those people and he said, tell me everything you do in the morning from the moment you get up in the morning, uh, right the way through the day, what do you do? And then he went to the less creative architects without telling them that that was why he was talking to them <laughs> and, so, and asked them the same question. What do you discover? There's only two. Only two different characteristics that creative architects could play. Yes. And that's what, John, you and I can do that. We can take an idea and just play with it without knowing where it's going yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. Whereas business people have to, in a lot of their job is being in control, but they try and control everything which means that they don't listen to their unconscious because it's not clear and written out. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. And people who play can respond to little impulses. They suddenly get an image in their mind, and they think, why did I think of that then? And then they start playing. And if you can play in that childlike way, then you can be creative. But we get get it educated out of us. And the other thing is the reason children can play. I mean, nobody's ever said to children playing, you're not doing that properly. But children can play because the parents are minding the shop. 
Yeah. And as you get older, you have to mind the shop. So what you have to do is set up a space in your life where you're away from everyday pressures. Uh, I, the playroom. You know, such, such a simple thing. But I was actually, uh, I was cycling. I went out riding a bike the other day. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. And I, and I got, I, just somebody else came cycling alongside me, this other guy, similar age to me, in his 50s. And we were getting to the top of this hill. And I looked at <laughs> him and he looked at me and I said, doesn't it make you feel like you're six years old again? And he went, yeah. And both <laughs> yeah. of us, grown men in Lycra, both went, Wee! <laughs> <laughs> That's how we stay alive. That's how we stay young, is to play. But people who want to be important can't play because they think other people will think that they can't be important if they're playing. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, they keep a sense of self-importance and lose the desire to live. Uh, 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 we can't all be worker bees, can we? That's the thing. We can't all be worker bees. No, no. And, and the, the, the creative archi architects knew how to play. Yes. And we have to create, we want to be creative as we grow up. We have to create a space where we get away from everyday uh, pressures and where we know that nothing we think is actually wrong. It's all worth exploring. We throw it away eventually if we decide it doesn't lead anywhere. But right at the start, nothing's, nothing's wrong. Nothing's a mistake. Well, that's, that's, that's a great reason to get the book. Is the book called Creativity? Yeah, I didn't think it was a very creative title. No, no, I couldn't, yes. <laughs> I could have said not, not creativity. Yeah. <laughs> you see what yes, I mean? Yes. Or a history of Shropshire waterways or something like that. A history of plummeting. <laughs> yeah. So so you said your third word was wisdom. What's the etiology of that? Uh, etymology. So, etymology. So, so quickly, so it's wisdom, it's a derivation of uh, wise. Yeah. There's an early mention of wisdom in Beowulf from the uh, the. 10th century definition of wisdom is uh, sagacity sapiens the ability to think and act using knowledge experience understanding common sense and insight there are a couple of quotes and uh, it's not sophocles it was socrates who said the only, only true wisdom is knowing you know nothing that's uh, the key that's the one aristotle said knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom and confucius my favorite of all by three methods, we learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is the easiest. And third, by experience, which is the bitterest. So why did you choose wisdom, John? Because I love the definition, Socrates. It's about understanding that you know so little. Because I, I, I mean this quite sincerely now. This sounds very naive. But we don't know why we're on the planet. We don't know if there's a real purpose anywhere. 
You know, some religions try to provide them. Some religious teachers do provide them. It's just that churches usually mess it up because religious leaders are operating at a very high level. People like Buddha and Christ, a very high level. And then they hand the teachings on to people at a much lower level. And then the churches, instead of enlightenment and helping people to, to become more mindful, they pr provide a lot of dogma and they want to be bigger and more powerful and richer, more influential, which is egotism. And Buddha and Christ were trying to get rid of egotism. So how can a church that wants to get bigger and more powerful be teaching lack of egotism? <laughs> you see, it's impossible. Yes, there's a circle, right? Yeah. So uh, that's what I love, because if you realize how little you know, then you keep learning. Every day you learn something new or th several things new, and that keeps uh, your approach fresh. And it also means that you're open to new information. I mean, one of the bad thing about scientists in general, there's two strange things about scientists. They're not interested in the philosophy of science. They say, oh, I leave that to others. I want to get on doing science. Well, that means what they're doing. They've never examined their assumptions. And people who don't examine their assumptions are basically in the dark. You see what I mean? Absolutely. Scientists need to be more interested in the philosophy of what they're doing, and they need to realize that it's not a belief system, it's a method of inquiry, which means that you go on and on learning. And Karl Popper, who is the greatest, uh, I think, philosopher of science for the last century, uh, he pointed out that you could never know anything for sure. For 250 years, everybody thought the laws of the universe were laid down basically by Newton. And then in 1900, the top physicist at the time, Lord Kelvin, said, well, well, well we solved everything. We're just arguing about the third decimal point. Five years later, uh, Einstein appeared with Max Planck and the quantum physicists and, you know, Niels Bohr, shot the whole thing down. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So you, you never know anything for sure. And that's why it annoys me that scientists will not take any interest in, in the psi phenomena, in, in some of the paranormal, which uh, is actually so, the existence of some of these things has been proved beyond any statistical doubt. So that's fascinating. Having said that, I'd add one question for you that I'd, when I saw Wisdom, because um, I wanted to take something away from this to keep. Uh, so accepting that we can't really know anything truly, but could I ask what you believe to be true and real and of value? Oh, dear. Um, well, I'm basically in favour. I know this is a bit revolutionary of people being happy. <laughs> <laughs> being, being allowed to do what they want to do. Uh, yeah. For example, uh, sexual behavior. I mean, provided it doesn't harm anyone, do whatever gives you pleasure. I've always been fascinated by the fact that people um, dress up, some people dress up in latex rubber in order to become more sexually excited. Now, I don't get that. I've never been tempted to try it out. But if that works for them, fine. Oh, but the effort... Yeah. The effort, what? the effort of doing that. I mean, and the now, chafing. I know, and now I'm in my fifties. I need a rest when I'm putting my socks on. Imagine putting lengths yeah, yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine socks made of that stuff. <laughs> well, it is a revolutionary thought to, that a, your philosophy is that uh, that happiness is something uh, is a goal in itself. 
Well, I think I think it is. But what else do you want? But you want to fit. There's a sort of. I mean, there's a happiness that simply comes from from fulfilling sensual pleasures. You know, like eating, for example, which is my great. My, that's my major sin is gluttony. I think food tastes so good, and the awful thing is, as you get older, it tastes even better. Yeah. It's, I just love food. I eat nothing else. <laughs> uh, but but you know that doesn't last. That kind of thing. There are there, if you have a a loving relationship with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or cat, it doesn't matter. Then there's a there's a pure pleasure in that which nothing can take away, and you don't need money for it. You know what I mean? And I think that the planet is falling apart. Because of greed, because people have decided the most important thing in the world is money and profit, and that's why they're cutting down all the forests that are the lungs of the planet. Because short-term profit making is more important than having a healthy planet for people to live on. So I think that this idea that you've got to be very rich because it's allied to being powerful. Is is absolutely poisonous, and I would love to do a series going around very rich people saying, "Why do you need all this money?" Yeah, yeah, yes. If you were staying in somebody's house and you knew they liked chocolate, and you went to the fridge, you saw six bars of chocolate, you'd think, "Yeah," but if he then took you outside and said, "Look at all those warehouses there; they're all stuffed to the roof with chocolate," you'd think, <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> when's yeah. enough? When, yeah. When's enough?" Yes. Yeah. I, it's interesting to me that you say two things that you said. One is you said uh, science denies the the pursuit of things like happiness because it's not factual, and it also denies things that are irrefutably been proven, like the paranormal. Explain yes. that. Well, if you if you anybody's interested, there's a book out there. There's several, but there's one called Real Magic by a guy called Dean D E A N Radin R A D I N. Uh, Mr. Care my interest. He's a good friend of mine, and I think he's wonderful. Real magic. And if you go, I think it's to chapter five, and read about the um, statistical proof of the existence of these things. There are people who can do remote viewing. Not many, but there are some. And the fact, if there's one who can do it, then that's something that that. Uh, so sorry, what's remote viewing? people, and this has been explored by American intelligence services, and I'm sure the Russians too, is the ability that some people have to sit somewhere and to picture themselves somewhere else and can describe other places from where they're sitting. I mean, there's no way that ordinary science can explain that. No. But if you go to chat, I know you're looking puzzled. It's yeah. extraordinary. But go buy this book. It's a paper, a small paperback. Dean Radin, Real Magic. Read, I think it's chapter five, and you read about all the tests that have been done, which prove, you know, the odds of millions or billions to one that certain people can do these things. I met a guy who there's a little thing they have that looks like an old-fashioned tape recorder, and there's four lights: red, blue, green, and yellow. And uh, there's a random, uh, random number generator inside that decides what's the next number that's going to light up. And you try and guess what's going to light up. Well, you've got one chance in four. 
right? 25%. You will score 25 out of 100. There's a guy I met in, in, in Virginia who's a, a judge in North Dakota, so he's not a weirdo, and he always scores 35 and not 25. Now, you can't explain it, but it, he does it again and again and again. And if, if there's one person who can do it again and again and again, and science can't explain it, what do they do? They sweep it under the carpet and get very cross about Now, the other thing I was going to say, does it, we, we're also a victim of our time in the fact that now, because the internet and so much, and, and so much information is out there, we're exposed to more information than ever, but we seem to know less. Is that, is that a fair assumption, the way you see the world? Yeah, about 30 years ago, I started complaining to people that the hardest thing in life was getting accurate information about anything. And that's before anybody talked about fake news. Mm. It's very hard now to find anything that you can be sure of. And that is why you have to live in a state of open-mindedness and saying, well, you know, for example, to say something quite shocking, is dem democracy finished? Yeah. Should we be looking for another system? Because it's based on an educated and intelligent electorate, and we don't have one. <laughs> and no, the Americans don't have one either. But, but also, democracy was predicated on people being able to make a balanced choice about the information yes. that they... Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. They were given and the problem is now because there's so many access points to information... As you said, it's very hard to know what information you're judging it on. Somebody could start a story on Twitter that's in a newspaper that's then become accepted by everyone in the world before anybody's even had a chance to prove it or disprove it. Well, there used to be newspapers called, uh, which were deemed to be uh, newspapers of record. That is to say they were recording what went on in the world. But the yeah. problem with newspapers papers is their overriding concern of course is selling newspapers and what they know is that if the news is good people aren't so anxious so they have to print stories that make people anxious because then they buy uh, newspapers in order to find out what they're anxious about and feel a bit safer as a result so if you say to uh, people everything's fine today and everyone's having a good time they're less likely to buy newspapers so newspapers their commercial interest is in readers and not in telling the truth that's so that's right. why they always uh, dramatize or what's the word sensationalize yeah the commercial imperative trumps all doesn't it john that yeah, drives everything an agenda as well it's very difficult to hear a piece of news that doesn't have some agenda behind it. 
Uh, that's right. It's very hard. And the sad thing about the BBC was that the license system was intended to free the BBC from commercial pressure so that they could concentrate Absolutely. on good programs. And then under John Burt, they got scared that if they didn't have enough viewers, uh, they'd lose their license. And so they started competing with the ITV channels. And they went down, and that's why in England now, or maybe in Britain, we have a tabloid culture instead of a more intelligent and educated culture, because that's where the money is. Well, can I can I ask you, John, as, as a man who's lived the life that you've lived, is there is the one or two pieces of wisdom that you could say you've picked up along the way? I watched a TED talk about stoicism. And I knew it was a philosophy of the classical world, and I listened to it, and I suddenly realized that it was exactly the same as a piece of wisdom I discovered, because it be, one or two people in my family at one point had problems with alcohol. So I got to know Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a fabulous organization, does wonderfully good work, and is very loosely organized, but organized on principles and not rules. And they have a prayer called the Serenity Prayer, which is obviously to help you become more balanced and calm and serene. And it goes something like this. It says, dear God, and it doesn't have to be God, it can be any higher power, which I, phrase I like, God, please give us the patience to endure what we can't change and the courage to act when we can change something and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that's why in a world that I regard as pretty hopeless, because I don't think we'll ever really have a sane, intelligent, kind, well-run society. And if we do just here and there for short, brief periods in world history, it soon disappears. That that doesn't mean that we can't live very fulfilling and happy lives. Just um, doing what we like and trying to help and uh, cheer up people who are going through difficult times. That's that's. A great way of finishing that off. John, you've given us three fantastic words, affection, plummet and wisdom, but we always ask our guests for one word that they would happily never hear again. Double check. Double, double check. check? I'll just double check that. Oh. oh. Okay, go Because on. what it really means is I know I should know the answer and I can't say that. Uh-huh. And uh, if I've already checked it, I would know the answer. So if I say I'll double check it, it suggests that I do really know, but I'm just going to make absolutely sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't I don't know. Have a fucking clue, and I ought. To. I haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that's a brilliant way of finishing. Yeah. You know, everyone just yeah. double check. Yeah, I'll just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we haven't got a. What I say to people now, when they say, I'll just double check that, I say, why don't you single check it first and then yeah. you'll be able to double check <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Fantastic, John. Uh, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, this is supposed to be entertainment for other people, and all three of us have had a really good hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a great time. I'm going. I'm going to get. I'm going to get your book on creativity because I think it's a you know as a as a man who's lived his life in it and we're living in it, sharing those little tips and thoughts on it are, are always always essential. 
I just wanted to take this. Sorry, John. To, uh, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss a chance to. You said earlier about the uh, fellas in the seventies that have come up watery-eyed and and thanked you so much. I just want to because John and I were talking before. Thank you because you've done that for <laughs> both of us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Well, what do you say? We've just had uh, a legend on who's took us on a dalliance with three great words. What a great energy to have in your 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no point during that that I wasn't thinking to myself, fucking hell, that's John Cleese. Do you know that he was so, he's so big in my landscape as a child? Monty Python's yeah. Faulty Towers particularly. That's, I think it's the first time I thought, Jesus Christ, that is John Cleese. And you're right, for a man, he's very vivid and connected and... On the ball, I think, yeah, it's fantastic. It's it great, and I, I'm the same. He is one of those people where, you know, because I've met him a couple of times, you meet him and he's talking, him, and you have to steal yourself yeah. from saying, yeah. oh, my God, that scene, man, I saw, no, yeah. this Do the walk. Do, yeah, the walk. do the walk, John, yeah, yeah. Yeah, resisted it. I hope that you enjoyed that episode of Three Little Words as much as we did. I absolutely love doing this show with Tony, and the guests have been brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, leave us a review, recommend us to any of your friends, and it just remains for me to say also thank you to our sponsor, Quorn. Super protein, super tasty. In 2001, less than a month after the 9-11 attacks, the U.S. and allied forces invaded Afghanistan. The goal was simple, hunt down al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden, and unseat the Taliban government that sheltered him. But even though the Taliban was quickly removed, negotiating an end to the war turned out to be a much bigger challenge. Despite some of the world's best negotiators working tirelessly for peace, all sides were never able to come to a negotiated agreement. And in 2021, 20 years after being ousted from power, the Taliban took back control of Afghanistan. So why did some of the world's smartest and most experienced negotiators fail for 20 years to mediate a peace deal in Afghanistan? The Afghan Impasse, a special seven-episode edition of The Negotiators, a podcast from Doha Debates and Foreign Policy, looks back on the players, politics, and strategies that contributed to one of the biggest failures in modern peace negotiations. You can listen to The Negotiators, The Afghan Impasse, exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify.